you, Terry. Give it up for Terry Ulrich on piano. That's awesome. Good job. Let's all stand as we open tonight. It's great to see you guys on this Saturday night. We have a great night. Pastor Ed is bringing the word, and we got Doyle Dykes. Come on. That's amazing. All right, we're going to read Psalm 100. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving. Be thankful to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. Let's stop there and pray tonight. Father God, we thank you for the chance, the opportunity that we get to be able to praise your name, to lift our voices to you, Father, to give a shout of thanksgiving in this place, God. We ask you to have your way with everything that is said and done. Be with the worship, be with Doyle Dykes, be with Pastor Ed as he shares the word. May you lead us closer to your heart, we pray, Father. And all of God's believers agree by saying, Amen. Why don't you guys turn around and say hello, and then we will worship.
tonight and welcome Mr. Doyle Dykes. Happy President's Day weekend. Great to be with you once again. I always enjoy being here with you in Redlands, the Packing House Church. There's only one Packing House Church, I'll tell you that. Thank you. 
Presidents' Day weekend. Let's do something patriotic. Tennessee South.
songs for a long time, uh, since I was a teenager. Here's one that starts off from an introduction from the 40s with Kate Smith. I did this on the Huckabee Show not long ago. They, we were raising money for guitars for vets. I asked the Lord to give me a, an organization that I could just kind of, something I could pour myself into, a benevolent thing, and before I knew it, I, was, I had three organizations that were giving away guitars. Free guitars for kids, and then the Songbirds Foundation, which gives free guitars to kids, and then guitars for vets, so they all had something to do with the guitar. So I knew it was the Lord. Amen. Here we go.
Amen. <laughs> Brother, I don't think I'm going to do that song that we're going to do. You know, the Bible talks about Jesus, the increase of his government and his peace. There shall be no end. You don't see those two words together much anymore, government and peace, but only in Christ. I heard somebody say, they said, well, somebody said, if so-and-so is the president, I'm, we're going to move to another country. Well, good luck on having peace in any other country, you know? And uh, because government, if you depend on the government, you're depending on the wrong thing. Amen. Focus on him. The end of his government and his peace, there shall be no end. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Everlasting Father. Amen. The Mighty God, the Prince of Peace. Thank you, Jesus. His name shall be called Emmanuel. Amen. Sorry. I, threw, I went to another chapter there, didn't I? His name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isn't that a great thing? You know, and now the Bible says that Jesus is in heaven. Sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. When he was resurrected, he breathed on his disciples. And he said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Ghost. You know, it's just like in Genesis, he breathed life. God breathed life into that form of clay and it became a living soul. Then he breathed the Holy Spirit in us. And then he said, there's one that come after me. He said, I won't leave you comfortless. I'm going away and I'm going to send the, he said, the Father will send the Holy Spirit in my name. And he shall be in you. If you love me, keep my commandments. And he, he shall be with you and he shall be in you. Amen. Isn't that good news? And then the day of Pentecost. Started off with 120 people. By the end of the day, it were 3,000. Converbs. That's what the Holy Spirit can do. Work in us.
Wow, if you ever want to know what a master class on guitar looked like, that is it. Thank you so much, Doyle. Appreciate your band. Well, let's take a moment and check out tonight's uh, uh, announcements. All right, Herm can go to winter camp. That is awesome. <laughs> well, just a reminder, if you are visiting for the first time, we have communion set up throughout the sanctuary, and we invite you to partake of that at any time during the service. And if you want to support the ministry here, we do have offering boxes located in the sanctuary in the back and also in the foyer. And before Pastor Ed brings a word tonight, why don't we bow our heads for a time of prayer. Father, we thank you for your mercies, God, that are new every day. We thank you for the grace that is poured out upon us as we sit here right now, Lord, ready to hear the word that you have for us this weekend, God. I pray that you'd be with Pastor Ed, that you would fill him with your spirit as he studied this week to just say the words that you've given him to say, Father, to be poured upon our hearts. I pray that we would be humbled and that our hearts would be receptive to your word tonight, Father. We thank you for this place that we can come and be in the peace of you, Father. So have your way, we pray in your name. Amen. If you would, hello. If you wouldn't mind standing with me, please. We are in uh, the book of Acts, chapter 12, verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. And then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads, a quatron, 16 soldiers, 
intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers. And the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood before him, and a light shone in the prison. And the angel struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. And so they went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real. But Peter thought he was seeing a vision. He thought he was dreaming. When he was past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate which leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many had gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked on the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda, or Rosie, came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, because of her joy, she didn't open the gate but ran and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you're beside yourself, you're out of your mind. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said it must be his angel. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, go, tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this uh, revealing section of the book of Acts, how you open prisons and how prayer changes things. Speak to us now. Teach us, we ask. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people agreed by saying, amen. You may be seated, please. <clears throat> We're talking about the power of prayer, and that, of course, reminded me of a couple stories. First one, um, probably a legend, but it's so good I have to tell you about it. Maybe you heard it. It's a small Tennessee town, and there were no liquor stores or bars. Uh, it was in a dry area, a dry county. However, a bar was brought in to Main Street. The churches in the area were so disturbed that they conducted several prayer meetings, all-night prayer meetings, and asked the Lord, one man prayed, to burn down <laughs> the nightclub. A little problem with that theology, but you get the idea. Lightning struck the nightclub. 
a short time after the prayer service stopped. And it was completely destroyed by fire. The owner, knowing how the believers had prayed, sued the church for damages. His attorney claimed that their prayers had caused the lightning and fire. The church people, on the other hand, hired a lawyer and contested the charges during the trial. Finally, the judge made his declaration. It's the opinion of the court that the owner of the nightclub is the one who really believes in prayer, while the church members do not. <laughs> so uh, sometimes that's true, isn't it? It's an interesting situation. God opens prison doors, and then there's another story here about prayer changing things. You have not, James wrote, because you ask not. That's a pretty strong statement to me, to you, to everyone. So this story that I just told you fits into what's happening in Acts chapter 12. It's really a, two apostles are arrested, James and Peter, and um, James is the son of thunder. He's John's brother. And Peter, they were both in the inner circle with Jesus. They were both part of the three that went with him up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And when he went into Jairus' house to raise up his daughter, who was dead, it was these three apostles that were with him. So they were, you could arguably say, uh, at least the favored ones, the ones that Jesus put his most time into for three and a half years. But what bothers me about this story, and I don't want to be alone in this, so I'll tell you why, and then it'll bother you, and then we can all be bothered. Uh, why is it that James is allowed to die by the sword, while Peter, also one of the inside, is saved miraculously by an angel? In other words, why didn't God send an angel for James, too? There were only 12 apostles, and uh, you think they were, you know, they're getting a little short on apostles by this time, but uh, it didn't work out that way. And it speaks of some of the things that you and I deal with. I have people that come to me all the time. Why did this person die when there was somebody else who was a lot less involved with God? Why did this happen? Why do good people suffer? And why do people who are anything but innocent get away with it? And so built into this story is this concept of praying and what power does prayer really have? Jesus in Matthew 29, 26 says, all things are possible with God. Nothing is too hard for God. A little too loud. James 4, 2 says, you do not have because you have not asked. 
Those two scriptures are kind of difficult to fit together. With God, everything's possible, so anything is possible for God. And if we would ask, we can't complain if we haven't asked God for those things. So we'll work our way through that, try and make some sense out of this. The church is in earnest prayer, it says, for Peter to be released. But even when they didn't expect it to happen, it seemed impossible, too impossible to them. They didn't believe that he was standing outside the gate, which I think is kind of funny. Oswald Chambers said, we tend to use prayer as the last resort, but God wants it to be our first line of defense. We pray when there's nothing else we can do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything else. So this section breaks up into three parts. The prayer that's offered in the first five verses. And then 6 through 11 is the prayer that is answered. And then the answer that's doubted in verse 12 through 17. That's where we're going. Verse 1. Now, about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Now, uh, this Herod is the grandson of Herod the Great. It's a little concern, disconcerting when you read through the New Testament because there's actually, some would say five, there's actually four Herods that are named. Herod the Great being the first one, he was rather short in stature, uh, and he called himself Herod the Great, being the humble guy that he was. But he was known for killing his wives, he had 10 wives, he killed uh, eight of them, and his sons. So this grandson was raised in Rome, and he became friends with two young men who would become Caesars, both of them, and that's why he got this position back in Israel. So um, Herod Antipas I uh, and Agrippa, uh, that's the one we're looking at. He reigned from 33 to 44. So you can kind of get an idea where we are after the resurrection. Um, it's been about 10, 11, maybe 12 years since Jesus died when this happens. So um, we'll see in Acts, as we move further along in, in Acts 21, uh, it's Agrippa 2, uh, and so there's three Herods there, and there may be a fourth one. Uh, this one is a smooth politician, and... Uh, he is making daily sacrifices at the temple because he wants the Jews to think he's a real fervent, devout Jew. Verse 2, and then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now that's significant that a Jew would be killed with the sword. So what he's saying is that this man, James, had been a Jew and then had given that up to become a Christian. And so there, it's not in the Torah, in the Old Testament, but in the Jewish rabbi's writing, it's called the Mishnah. It says that that's supposed to happen. So, um, this is uh, a man who is, uh, was very important to the church and everyone was watching him. Now, uh, 
James' mother and John, the sons of Zebedee, you remember them, uh, were called the sons of thunder um, because they were always a little short-tempered. And uh, we'll see John, uh, he's still alive, of course, and we'll see him as we move along a little further in the book of Acts. And we've already studied the Gospel of John and Revelation we'll get to at the end. So um, there's a difficult question here. There, there is a dilemma. He was killed with the sword, the first apostle, martyred. Why does God save one? In the space of a few short verses, James, the apostle, dies, but Peter, the apostle, is miraculously released from jail. Both were part of the original 12 apostles. Jesus had invested these time in these time, three and a half years in them. It's hard to understand why God would allow such a loss. However, when we look at the Old Testament, like Isaiah 55, verse 9, God says to Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways. My ways, God says, are higher than your ways. In fact, they're beyond finding out. Obviously, there's things he does want us to find out. That's why he's left the word for us. But I believe this concept of why one man dies and another one doesn't, and we all know people like that, that that's happened to I think that is God saying, there's things that you can't grasp right now, or it's a little bit insulting. My ways are beyond your finding out. You're not smart enough, <laughs> is what I, the way I read that, and I've taken that apart, the Hebrew, and looked at all the words carefully. You're, not, you're never gonna understand all the things, all the reasons why that I do things, God says, this side of heaven. But Paul says one day, when we arrive in his presence, seeing him, we will be like him. And we will know just as he knows. So someday, when we're in God's presence, I think it's going to go something like we're going to walk up, float up, however, and the minute we see Jesus' face, I think we're going to say, oh, of course, why didn't I see that? We weren't able to here, but in heaven, we will. So God's ways are unapproachable completely here, but there are things about his character that he wants us to understand. We'll come back to that again. Verse 3. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, Herod is trying to get the Jews on his side because he's only half Jew. Edomian, he was uh, uh, also a son of Esau. He proceeded further to seize Peter also during the days of unleavened bread. So Herod needed to be liked, and it's during... Uh, the days of the feast, eight days in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, and he wants to show them that he's observing Passover, part of those eight days. 
And fearing a riot, he waited for the uh, pilgrim crowds to go home. So we waited till after the end of it. And he wanted to have the full attention of the Jewish leadership. I, I think those are the things that make this make a little more sense. Verse 4, and when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers, four quatrons, I said quickly as we were reading it, four squads of four soldiers each, 16 men to watch one fisherman, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So he waits but Herod is just going through the motions. He knows exactly what he's going to do. Um, now, we remember that leavening in the Passover, in preparation for the Passover, if you were Jewish, you would know you'd go through the house and, like, dust all the floors, all the corners with a feather, and you'd put it into a dustpan. You were taking all the leavening out of your house. That was an act of faith more than it was you could see it. But uh, as you know, leavening is yeast, uh, little beastie yeasties that get into bread, and they consume the glucose, and they put out carbon dioxide gas. And so that's why bread rises or rolls or uh, you know, all different kinds of baked goods. But during Passover, to make sure there wasn't any in the house, they'd literally feather all the way through the whole house, sweep all the dust out of the house so there wouldn't be any leavening. Because when they originally left Egypt after the Passover, they had to take their bread that hadn't had time to rise, and so they had unleavened bread. Why? If you would ever go to a Jewish celebration of Passover today, all the bread is, is what we would call flat bread. It hasn't had any yeast in it because yeast is a picture of sin. And now the contradiction here is he's in jail and they're trying to sweep their houses clean so there's, all the sin would be taken out, but they're planning on killing him. <laughs> And, and, and that's what religion does to you. It, it makes you blind uh, sometimes to uh, how does this all really work? So, in fact, they're plotting sin in the middle of sweeping up all this leavening. Verse 5, Peter was stuck in prison, kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. The church prays, gathers together in Jerusalem, now, we remember that the writer of Acts is Luke, and he is, by profession, a physician. And we can see that if you read Greek uh, in this particular verse, he uses a medical term to describe the prayer. He says it was constantly offered, and the word is extendos, E-X-T-E-N-O-S, and it is a medical term that means a hyperextended joint, like knocking your shoulder out of joint or a knee or something like that. So what he's saying is that uh, they, that was stretched out, far-reaching prayer, 
uh, that was being made by the church to God for him. Earnest prayer, someone else wrote, and that's a good word too. Um, now, earnest prayer has power, not because it itself persuades a reluctant God. That's not what's going on here. It has power because it demonstrates that our hearts care passionately about the things that we're bringing to God. This is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise, John 15, verse 7, that if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then ask what you desire and it shall be done unto you. Earnest prayer, I like it. When I was a young Christian, I heard a, a sermon that stuck with me all these years, and it said, whenever you think of prayer, you should think of pushing prayer, P-U-S-H. And uh, it's an acronym that means um, pray you until S something H happens. Keep praying until something happens. I like that. And that's been my practice, because naturally I just forget about things, but I've been uh, trying to practice that. Okay. Um, now, pish means physically, but this is more than that. This isn't just physical. This is spiritual, and this is emotional too. And that ties into the prison that we'll see in just a moment. Um, Prayer doesn't have to be physically hard work. That's not what I'm saying. But sometimes it is a struggle to just get started because the tyranny of the urgent comes rushing in on our lives. Satan makes sure there's a thousand distractions. He said, well, I'm going to pray this morning. That's when the dishwasher blows up and shoots water all over the kitchen or the... Uh, sink backs up in the shower and all those crazy things. Um, so really the struggle usually is just putting away distractions, right? God answers the prayer of the interceding church and actually sends a heavenly messenger, this angel, to release Peter from his cell. It's a direct cause and effect relationship. So Frank Filsham uh, is, the, uh, is the director of the uh, Family Medical Institute at Florida State University. And he's gathering all the studies um, that are being done in the United States, testing whether prayer works. In other words, they're called, in science, a double-blind study is that uh, if you pray, have a group of people praying for people who are sick or just finished, a, say, a cardiac surgery, um, and they don't know they're being prayed for, and the people who are praying for them do, don't know them personally. So it's unaffected by personality. There has been 191 studies. So they go all the way back to the 1800s. 1870s was when the first study was done trying to prove that prayer changes things. Um, Francis Galton, a British mathematician, was the first to do the very first study. Well, they are going on right to this day. Uh, one very famous one in um, 
1999 was done at the University of California in San Francisco, and they found that 15% of patients who were prayed for after cardiac surgery didn't have any complications, where every patient who were not prayed for did, things like that. Of course, that drives the atheists crazy, and they always then, then they do a study to prove the first one wrong, but um, the t John Templeton Institute is carrying on one of these right now. And uh, Fincham, this, this director of the Family Medical Institute, wrote this in November. Um, what can science say about the study of prayer? The scientific study of the effectiveness of prayer has been going on for at least 150 years, starting with the work of this British statistician, Galton. In the last 25 years, there have been 191 American scientific studies published on that subject in journals, uh, peer-reviewed journals, a journal that's written to cardiologists or, or uh, uh, different kinds of doctors or dentists, and they, uh, they are part of the study. So Templeton Prayer Study came to the conclusion petitioning God's for others is not futile. In fact, the studies have shown that intercessory prayer for the well-being of a loved one improves the patient's myocardial functioning, uh, the oxygenation of, of blood, and the cardiac output. Uh, so uh, that study is going on right now, the Templeton one, and it will be completed next year. You might want to watch out for it. And then give it to all your atheist friends and it'll drive them crazy. Uh, verse 6. Now the prayer is answered. When Herod was about to bring him out, Peter, that night Peter was sleeping. Have you ever noticed how many times in the scripture Peter is sleeping? <laughs> um, Peter's sleeping in the boat. Peter is uh, sleeping at the Mount of Transfiguration. He's waking up suddenly. He says, I think we need to build tents here for everybody. And Father God rebukes him. This is my beloved son. Hear him, those sort of things. So Peter is, uh, again, sleeping. But he's bound with two chains between two soldiers, probably on his wrists or maybe on his feet. And the guards, the other 14, because there are 16 total, before the door were keeping the present. So... Um, there is, uh, <laughs> maybe it's, let's say Peter just is resting in grace better than the rest of us. Verse 7. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him. He's asleep. And a light shone in the prison. And it struck Peter, the angel struck Peter on his side. Now, when it says struck, he, he didn't tap him. In fact, the word is smote him. <laughs> and um, he's uh, strongly being hit. Uh, and notice how the angels, in fact, throughout Scripture, in my way of seeing it, they're always in a hurry. And he struck Peter on the side and raising him up, grabbed him, picked him up. I don't know. That's what it says. Raising him up said, Arise quickly. 
and his chains fell off his hands. Well, um, why are angels always in a hurry? The angel then said, well, gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And he did. And he said to him, put on your, now put on your jacket, Peter. It's like dressing a, a kid for kindergarten you know, or something. Put on your garment and follow me. Now, I, I've been musing on this for a while. And you can have your own opinion on it and talk to me about it or share it with each other. I think angels are in a hurry because this world is very sad to them. And being in the presence of God changes everything. When you read about what the angels are doing, say, in Isaiah chapter 6, it said, and they surrounded the throne of God and they fell down before him and said, holy, holy, holy. I think they're in a hurry to get away from earth because they want to get back to heaven. And that should encourage us all that heaven is a wonderful place. So don't blame the angels. They're just trying to get back home. Now, behold, verse 7, an angel of the Lord stood by him, light shone, he hid him, put on your garment, verse 8, and then he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was dreaming or seeing a vision. Peter didn't understand at first that this was really happening. I think this is hilarious. And finally, when he gets outside, maybe the cold air hits him. Uh, finally, he realizes, wait a minute, I, I'm in this dream. It's real. And when they were past the first and the second guard gates, they came to an iron gate that stood, that leads into the city. And it opened by its own accord. <laughs> the first garage door opener the angel had with him. But they went out and went down one street. Immediately the angel departed from him. So as soon as the angel gets him outside, he's gone. I'm out of here. I'm going back to heaven. This place stinks. Verse 11. And when Peter had come to himself... <laughs> I love that. Come to himself. Uh, the English language has interesting ways of saying things. Who else is he going to come to? He said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectations of the Jewish people. The Jewish people wanted him killed. And he's saying, oh, this was God. Um, Act on God's possibilities in your life. When he presents an opportunity for you, do it. That's really what Peter is looking at here. Um, God says, take a chance. We say, take it easy. I think God wants us to step out in faith whenever we see opportunities to minister to people. There's a... Raymond and I had a wonderful... Uh, 
meeting in a restaurant the other day. Didn't know the people. We were sitting there waiting. The restaurant was full. And this couple came in that were um, a little rough. <laughs> I'm being generous. And a uh, nice-looking couple. They were just, uh, you know, tatted and pierced and had, a, you know, offending T-shirts on. And, but they sat down right across us from us where we were waiting, and there were a bunch of other people around. And um, he had a sticker on from Redlands Community Hospital from the uh, radiation department. They give you, if you're going in to be radiated, if you have cancer. That's the only reason why this particular sticker is used. And Raylan recognized it, and she said, uh, I should pray for you. He said, what? He said, are you having radiation? He said, oh, no, not me, my wife. How'd you know that? You know, she said, because I was there a few hours ago this morning. And it led to a long conversation. And uh, they were both weeping by the time. They, they said, can we have lunch with you? And I wanted to say, sure, if you take off that T-shirt. But I didn't. <laughs> and so uh, we had lunch together. And of course, when you do that, several people from the church walk by, and one lady looked at the t-shirt, and she looked at me. And, you know, I didn't want to embarrass this couple or anything. But it was an opportunity to speak to someone that obviously wasn't going to church. So I think that's the lesson here. Um, Peter jumped out on this possibility. And uh, Peter is uh, going through some really interesting things here. God is the God of possibilities. Uh, you know, we see things and we go, you know, I'm pretty busy. I don't know if I can fit that in my schedule. And I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on anybody. I'm just saying when you see an opportunity, if you can, grab a hold of it because it may be a great blessing for you. When I left this morning, Raylan was on the phone to this lady she had called upset. So, uh, you know, two days later. Um, prayer, offered prayer, answered, uh, answered, doubted now. Verse 12, now when he, Peter, uh, considered this, he came to the house of Mary. And this is very interesting. This is a Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. This is John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark and would later travel with uh, Paul and Barnabas and write down what Peter had seen in his Gospel. The Gospel of Mark is this man. And the prayer meeting is at his mother's house. Um, and many were gathered together there. Uh, and verse 13, and then Peter knocks on the door of the gate. Now, evidently, um, uh, early church historians say that Mary's home, John Mark's mother's home, was the same place that Pentecost took place. We can't prove that. It's just uh, an early church father, Tertullian, wrote that. So this may be the house where in their back there now after Pentecost and they're praying for Peter. It's an interesting house. I want you guys, I'm ahead of myself, but if, when you go to Israel, and if you haven't gone, you do need to go. 
um, because you'll get a chance to go into that. That's the traditional second story room where the Passover took place. Excuse me, where uh, the Holy Spirit fell on Pentecost. And, uh, and the, that's where the tour groups go, and we've sung songs in there I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. And it's upstairs there. Now, downstairs where those people, uh, those are some people from our church, uh, that was an enclosed garden, evidently, with a gate on it. And, and that seems to be what this is describing, that outside of the house, there's a gate, and when they got to it, the front gate, Peter knocks on the door of the gate, verse 13. And a girl named Rhoda came to answer. Uh, so this walled patio or, or garden entry, the early church is meeting there in the upper room, and then this girl comes out and doesn't say she's a servant girl. Maybe she's the only one that heard Peter at the gate, but her name is Rhoda, which is Rosemary translated, or Rosie, you might call her. And when she recognized, verse 14, Peter's voice, because of her joy, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate. She was so excited to see him and hear him that she ran back inside and announced that Peter stood outside before the gate. Now, Peter's probably thinking, wait, wait, wait. There's angels. I mean, that, uh, an angel was here, here, and, and there's these soldiers who are going to come looking for me, and, and you leave me standing out here in the street. So she doesn't, they're praying that Peter would show up, and he shows up, and she doesn't get it. Hmm. Impatient in a hurry, she refuses <laughs> to open the gate, but she did at least run in and tell everybody. They said to her, you're crazy. You're beside yourself. You're, you're not connected with your brain. You're outside of yourself. God. Now, they, you think they would have said, Peter's here? Well, praise God. But not so much. <laughs> they, they don't believe any more than she does that it's really Peter. She's lost her mind. It's an angel. Now, why did they go to that conclusion? Because there's a Jewish superstition, still true today. Each person has its own guardian angel. And uh, that angel looks like the person that they've been assigned to and sometimes shows up. It is a superstition, okay? I'm not saying it's scriptural. It's what this is describing, though. It, that makes sense to me. And I've mentioned it before, I grew up in a Catholic church, and the Catholic church teaches the same thing, that you have a guardian angel. If I have a guardian angel, I've got a bone to pick with him. He, he's let a lot of stuff happen, slip through the grid. That, but anyway, you can think about it that way. So Peter keeps on knocking, verse 16. And when they finally opened the door and saw him, they're, ex they're astonished. What are you doing here? Well, wait a minute. You were just praying that he would come. God brings him, and then you go, how is this possible? I'm trying to point out that they're not praying in great faith, okay? They, it doesn't, even though they prayed that Peter would be freed, when he shows up, they can't believe it. Sound familiar? 
17, but motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, something like, shh. <laughs> he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison, told them what had happened. Go, tell these things to James. Now, don't be confused. This is a different James, obviously, than James who was killed in the first three verses. This is James, the brother of Jesus. Uh, and, uh, and the brethren were gathered. This is the writer of the book of James that we have. He departed and went to another place. Um, now, prisons. Oh, let me wrap this up. Most of us um, have heard of the name Harry Houdini. He was a uh, kind of a sideshow act, but he became famous, and, and he would escape from all kinds of locks, and they'd put him in a box and throw him in the ocean, and he'd get out. And, uh, but his most famous statement was that he could get out of any prison anywhere in the world in less than two hours. This is um, 1925 when he's doing this. He, um, about a year later, so it's been about 100 years since he died, but I want you to see the spiritual application here. So he would, uh, he would they'd put him in freshly built jails or prisons and give him two hours, and he'd let them stand right there, and he'd get out, every one of them. But one time in upstate New York, in Albany, New York, in 1925, they built a brand new prison and uh, they were confident that he couldn't get out. And so when he came, uh, they chained him, as you can see. But in his belt buckle, he had a little piece of spring steel. And he had been a locksmith before he became a sideshow guy and he got all those chains off. But then he goes over to the door, and he starts to try and pick the lock. And he's watching a watch, and after a half an hour, he's covered with sweat. He said, there's something wrong with this lock. And, and so he's working on it, he's working on it, everybody's watching him, the cameramen are taking pictures of him. I think we had a second picture of him. And uh, he ends up, uh, frustrated for over, the other picture, you guys have that? Yeah. And so you can see the look on his face. He's a little frustrated there. This is hour number one. He's not getting out, okay? And it, it says at an hour and 30 minutes, he was covered, drenched in sweat. And he's exhausted, he's huffing, and he's puffing. And at two hours, a minute before two hours, he couldn't get it. And he said, I can't do it. And he fell against the door, and it opened. That's why he couldn't get it worked out, because they forgot to lock it. Interesting. I, I think there's a lesson here. He could have walked out the whole time, but he was convinced, and the other people around him, that that door wasn't gonna open, he was in prison. I dare say in this room tonight, we're surrounded by people who are in prisons 
And God is trying to get you to see the doors open. Jesus already paid the part. There, there's a way to get out on him. The world might say, no, it's a mental problem. You'll never, you were born that way. It's genetic. You'll never get out. They might say it is a, a physical problem that you can't fix. Nothing is impossible for God. What is your prison? Is it alcohol, porn, materialism, status, position, education, power, food, shopping? I just wrote down a whole bunch. Uh, a certain kind of house that I think if you just had that and, and you just can't quite get it. A car, motorcycle, airplane, boat. What's your prison? Where are you tonight? Ask God. Prayer changes things. And God is able to open any door. Now, there's a lot of you here that I'm sure God has already released you from a prison. You can say, yeah, it was back 10 years ago. I was locked. In fact, let me ask you, how many people here could say that God released them from a prison? Keep your hands up a minute. Wow, more than half, probably two-thirds, okay? So for the rest of anyone who might be here or those who are out on the Internet, uh, that there's a whole group of people here that would tell you God releases people from prison. Would you stand, please, and we'll pray together. Thank you, Lord, that you have put us in a room filled with miracles, people who were in prison physically, mentally, spiritually, and yet you released us all, myself included, Lord. Billions are shackled in this world. But, Lord, we pray for any here this evening who are struggling, that you would give them grace and they would see to just push against the door to, to settle into your arms and surrender their lives to you. Christians, please pray. So I wonder if there's someone here, maybe you have been thinking this whole time through, you, you don't know the prison that I'm in. I, I can't do anything about it. This is your opportunity to surrender to God. There's a whole group of people that are praying for you right now that God would release you. If you'd like to know that your sins are forgiven, if you'd like to know that you're going to spend eternity with God, if you want to be set free, this is your moment. I won't do anything to embarrass you, but if you're in that condition, would you let me know you're ready to surrender by looking up at me and raising your hand? I need God to set me free from something. Anyone here this evening that God is speaking to? Hmm. I don't see any hands. Well, God bless you. You've all been set free. Is that right? Did I miss a hand? Somebody's pointing over here. I don't see any hands. Okay, so we'll just say thank you, Jesus, for releasing and encourage those who are on the edge to let go. So, now may the Lord bless you and may he keep you. 
And may he make his face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you grace. And may you be so filled with the Holy Spirit that others ask you about the joy that you have. God bless you. Give somebody a hug before you go home. Good night.